Good morning. How is everyone today? Has everyone gotten more sleep the last few days than I have? Good for you. That is excellent. Durenberg, are you feeling better? Good. All right. Your roommates are feeling bad, so it's good to see you. It's good to see you. Uh, I'm excited to be here today. I ducked out to the men's retreat for a few days this weekend, and I know some of you guys were there, so it's excellent to see you. They stuck me in charge of penitential psalms. Those are the psalms expressing deep sorrow and regret. Can I tell you how much I hate that they put me in charge of the penitential psalms? Because I like to sneak puns into my sermons and make jokes, and they're like, here, here's some of the most depressing material in the Bible you're in charge of it, so thanks. Uh, so to ease us into it, I have some pictures. I had the last minute idea, I put it on Facebook. So these are from some of my Facebook friends. They're actual children. I asked them for photos of their children upset about something silly. Uh, so yeah, this is my friend. I understand that she was quoted as saying, I can't fly it's no use. Bless her little heart. She got wings and everything, and she still can't fly. Um, yeah, so this little, this little darling, bless her heart, her parents wouldn't let her stick peas and corn up her nose, and it was heartbreaking. Bless her heart. All she was to stick peas and carrots up her nose. <laughs> Mom and Dad said no. Uh, the bottle was coming too slow and, and so tiny and yet already was like, you have disappointed me, grown-up. Why have you let me down? Ah, uh, doesn't want to go to the daycare classroom. And I'm sure those of you who, parents, who are parents know this kid will probably come back at the end of the day and be like, I don't want to leave, I'm having too much fun. Can't win on either end. And... This adorable little one, bless her heart. I understand that she sulked for an hour because she is not old enough to drive. <sighs> Ruined her day. Remember her. I'm going to reference her some as, as we talk through this morning. But what I would like you to do, I want you to take a minute to greet each other. And as you do, I want you to share a story. It can be serious or it can be funny. You choose your path but share a story of a time when you upset someone that you love. So take a moment, say hello to the people around you, and answer that question. All right, my friends. So this morning, we are digging in. This morning, we are digging into Psalms chapter 38. And it is one of our penitential psalms, one of the songs, psalms expressing deep sorrow or regret. Uh, it's one of the songs we, we connect with crying out to God as a result of our sin. And sin is a word that I, I feel like, especially in our culture, it has some heavy baggage. And I, I think some of that is because the word sin has gotten abused a bit in our culture. Uh, so I want to unpack the word sin before we even dig into Psalm 38 so that hopefully we can get a little bit more on the same page as we're thinking about it. 
So in unpacking that word, I looked up, I would say the Webster's definition. I'm not that cool. I just Googled it. But I Googled the definition of sin, and it's an immoral act considered to be a transgression against divine law. And so I want to think through, okay, is this a helpful definition? It's not that it's an inaccurate definition, but I think when we take this definition in this way, it can get abused often in ways that don't even point toward what God's actually pointing us to when we think about the word sin. So I want to dig further into even the idea of sin before we think about what it means to express great sorrow or regret about our sin. So even though we're in Psalm 38 all the way back in the Old Testament, I want to zip forward all the way to the New Testament for a little bit to Jesus. Because if we're going to talk about sin, I think we should connect that into what we understand about Jesus, God on earth, guiding us in in what sin is. So to do that, let's think about Mark chapter 12, verse 30 and 31. Jesus has asked what the greatest commandment is. And I suspect a lot of you know it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he gives a second one that's like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So when we think about sins, we usually connect that to the commandments, to guidelines from the Bible. And Jesus has asked the greatest commandments, and it's loving God and loving our neighbor. Now, it's easy for us when we think about Jesus to think, Jesus was completely saying something revolutionary. The Jewish people had never thought of this. This is a new concept. Up until 2,000 years ago, nobody had thought about the core of not saying being loving God and loving our neighbor. So let's actually look at almost the same words on the mouth of an expert in the law who came to ask Jesus the same question. In Luke chapter 10, we were in Mark, we're in Luke chapter 10, Jesus is asked what the greatest commandments are only this time. He doesn't directly answer. He goes, well, what do you say? This is an expert in the law. This is a, a, a Jewish religious leader, and, and we give them a bad rap, rap a lot, and, and a lot of times with good reason, because often they're known for their legalism. They're known for missing the mark in living out their, their faith in a positive way. But in, in Luke chapter 10, the guy's asked the question, he gives basically the same answer Jesus did. This is a teacher in the law. He already knows the answer that the greatest commandments, love God, love our neighbor as ourself. So when we're hashing out the greatest commandments, it's love God, love our neighbor. So an expert in the law in Jesus' day, he knew that this is the connection we make. So you're thinking, okay, maybe, maybe in Jesus' day, people were starting to get ready for that commandment. So let's actually zip all the way back to the Old Testament, to the Ten Commandments. In Exodus and Deuteronomy, we see those. And, and when we get the Ten Commandments, if you break those down, and we're not going to dig all the way into these, but I'll point you that direction. You can look it up later. If you dig into the Ten Commandments, you'll find that about half of them are connected to our relationship with God and about half of them are connected to our relationship with other people. So at its core, the the guidelines for living out what God calls us 
two in the Bible are about our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. Now, when we get into more nuanced guidelines of living out what God calls us to, I feel like it's very helpful to have in our mind the understanding that at its core, it's not about a checklist. It's about our relationship to God and our relationship to other people. So when we think about sin and what sin is, I would encourage us to think about sin not in the sterile dictionary definition that we often think about it, but as missing the mark as a failure in our relationship to God and or our relationship to other people. Because our relationships being right, that's how we live a healthy life that honors God on this earth, is when we live out those relationships well. Now, the painful reality is we all fail in some ways at some times in our relationship to God and our relationship to other people. So when we visit Psalm chapter 38, we visit a psalmist who knows they have sinned, who knows they have failed in their relationship to God and others. And Mary wonderfully read this for us a few minutes ago. But as they've failed, they call out to God, God, please do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath. Who else doesn't like the word wrath? <laughs> I, don't, I don't like the word wrath at all. I'm like, this is not the image that I want in my mind in my prayers. Wrath. Ugh, I, I don't like it. it. It seems unpleasant. Yeah, it, it does. It does. But let's think about, there, there are some other words here that I think help us unpack it. Do not rebuke me. Well, we think of rebuke as purely an anger. Rebuke can be positive. When you get a healthy rebuke, when you're going down the wrong path, rebuke can actually be very helpful. Let's think of our little girl who was upset that she wasn't old enough to drive. Let's say one day, let's say mom puts her in the car on one side and is walking around to the other side to get ready to go, and the little girl's like, I'm going to crank the car. And goes and reaches over to do that. Mom sees that and says, no, stop it. What are you doing? She gets rebuked. But she gets rebuked because she needs to be rebuked. She needs to be taught because she's putting herself in danger with her actions. We think of rebuke and anger purely as, as negative. Even Jesus got angry in some context. See, anger, rebuke, they get abused. They get used poorly. And we've all been guilty of rebuking someone or getting angry at someone when it had way more to do about us than it had to do with loving the person or investing in them. But if we put anger and rebuke in a positive sense, a sense that's actually meant to guide us, it starts to take on a different tone. Now, I, I don't know about you. I, I hate being rebuked even when I deserve it. <laughs> I don't know if anybody else is like that. Me, I don't 
Like, I, I try to receive it well. I often don't. I mean, like, y'all, I was like 10 minutes late this morning from a miscommunication that I think was totally me, and I got called on it in a jovial way, and I was, like, internally devastated. I was like, I have failed. No one else cared. They didn't care. They didn't really care. They were like, I'm going to pick on Dan. He's late. No one cared. But internally, I... I took it poorly. So rebuke is hard to take, even when it's rebuke that is much more substantial and much more needed, rebuke can be hard to take. Now, we don't know the context behind the prayer in Psalm 38. We do know that Psalm 38 is attributed as a Psalm of David. Did David actually write it himself? We don't know. But I couldn't help thinking of David after his well, I was going to say indiscretion. It's far more than that. After his flat-out sin that is on his shoulders with Bathsheba, and as a result of that sin, he knows that his son is going to die, his newborn son. And I couldn't help thinking of the, the utter weeping and calling out to God that he experiences in that time as a result of his sin. Now, this is a man who is known as a man after God's own heart, but he is also a man who failed in some pretty catastrophic ways. He's a man who genuinely needed and did receive some rebuke for his sin. And I think of the way his heart cried out to God. He was a man who needed a rebuke. He needed to hear it. But the cry of his heart, that anguish, was very real. And there are moments when, as painful and unpleasant as it is, when we need to experience rebuke. When we have fallen into something that just can't be part of our lives, and we need to turn away from it. I think of, uh, and actually, uh, Charlie pointed me in this direction, but I like it, I, I it's kind of like the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn. Sometimes we need to mourn what has happened. In, in our sin, in, in just what's happening in our world, sometimes we need to mourn because it points us to where God would have us go. And as the psalmist continues in, in verse 5, well, it doesn't get more pleasant. The psalmist says, my wounds fester and are loathsome, because of my sinful folly, I bowed down and brought, I am bowed down and brought very low. All day long I go about mourning. My back is filled with searing pain. There is no health in my body. I am feeble and utterly crushed. I groan in anguish of my heart. There are physical repercussions to the psalmist's sin. I mean, if you think back to a time when you've upset someone you loved and you knew that you goofed, sadly, I, I suspect we've all been there. We've probably all seen some kind of relationship or connection fail in our life because we goofed. And, and the implications feel physical. Even when they're not actual physical, your body starts to suffer from that failure. 
Now, and, and sometimes the results of sin really are physical. You know, you, you make decisions that put yourself in physical danger that you know, you're like, okay, this isn't what God would have of me, but I am drawn to this thing. I am drawn to this temptation. I know I'm not old enough to drive, but I want to turn on the car and see if I can go somewhere. And we put ourselves in physical danger. And there is a reality to the physical danger, and the psalmist is feeling that. We don't know exactly what they've faced, but we know that it is affecting them physically. And I think it's often much more easier for us to see the social repercussions of sin. The psalmist goes on, my friends and companions avoid me because of my wounds. My neighbors stay far away. You know, it's it's like a celebrity who's become a pariah because they've done something that everybody looks at and goes, oh, you bad. <laughs> I don't want any, I don't want to be anywhere near you because you are, you have done something so horrible. I don't want to be associated with it. So that, that can happen, that can happen with our friends that they, they see what we do, we, we, they see our failure and they're tempted to back away and hopefully, for the record, hopefully we love each other and don't abandon each other when we fail because every one of us is going to stumble. The temptation is there and even more so, the psalmist not only have their friends backed away, but their enemies come out of the woodwork. Those people who don't actually love them, who, who kind of want to see them fail, who are on the other side of some invisible line, socially, politically, ideologically, or on the other side of that line, and when they fail, they're like, oh, you're not a football team I like. I'm glad that you, glad that you had a bad game, only obviously much more real, much more significant than football. And, and so our sin can start to affect us physically, socially, not just with our friends, not just with those who love us, but also with our enemies, with those who want to see us harm, and it gets worse because it develops. I know when, when we're in that anguish, it can be tempting to feel so very alone, whether real or imagined, because the way the psalmist writes, and again, this is, this is, to me, it's always hard to teach the psalms because they're, they're more poetry. And, and with poetry, with this outpouring of emotion, an outpouring of emotion is, I would say, not always logical. It's usually not logical. My most emotional moments usually don't make perfect sense. They're this mix of sensible and how I feel. They're, they're, they're a mix of some truth combined with what feels true that may or may not actually be so. So the psalmist, when you dig in, it feels almost like like, yeah, maybe some people have turned against them, but maybe they're also looking around and they're like, those who set their traps for me, who would harm me, talk of my ruin all day long. They plot deception. Sometimes 
there's some reality to that. And sometimes it just feels that way. Because the more broken we get, the more the worst feels true. And we start to embrace things not only that are, that are truths that could, could point us in the direction of, oh, I need to make some changes, oh, I need to make some growth, but that we start to just embrace lies about the reality of our situation, the reality of our hope, the reality of ourselves, and our anguish starts to feel alone. Yeah, verse 16, do not let them gloat or exalt themselves over me when my feet slip, for I am about to fall and my pain is ever with me. <sighs> it's tough to read, isn't it? It's tough to hear someone in that kind of anguish, and it's even tougher to be reminded of the times when we have experienced those deeply painful seasons. But then we move into the last segment. I confess my iniquity. I am troubled by my sin. Now, when we're troubled by our sin, I think it's tempting to be troubled in the way that is legalistic and misses the point. We're troubled because things didn't go the way we wanted we're troubled because we wanted to check a box that didn't get checked in the way we wanted to. And I, I don't feel like that hits the mark of what we're actually going for. But if we've actually done something to damage our relationship to God, to damage our relationship to other people, and I say if, if I should say when, because we all do that in little and big ways. It's very easy to be centered in self and miss other people. And often, often that sin is mutual. Uh, I'm sure you've heard the phrase, hurting people hurt people. Uh, it, it comes that way with our sin often. Someone says something to us that might be genuinely wrong, and so our response is to say or do something to get them that is equally genuinely wrong, and the sin multiplies, and as so often happens with sin, neither of us come out unscathed because we are all broken by this sin thing, this failure in relationship to God and relationship to other people. So the psalmist, as the psalmist is drawing to a close, they are troubled by their sin. They're seeing their enemies everywhere. They're seeing people who repay good with evil and lodge accusations against them. And I, and I tell you, when I'm struggling, it feels that way, regardless of to what degree it's true. It can feel like the world is against you. So the psalmist confesses they are still struggling with enemies, evil people, and some false accusations mixed in. But then they call out to God for help. See, the passage, it starts, Oh, Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have pierced me and your hand has come down upon me. Because of your wrath, there is no health in my body. Honestly, if I just read those verses, it would sound like God's scary. The bad guy in the story. 
it, it's easy to go, oh, God is, is wrathful and terrible. And I, I follow because I have to, because I'm going to get punished if I don't. But when we think of sin in terms of missing the mark in our relationship to God and relationship with others, and we think of God's wrath, not in terms of something meant to harm or punish, but of something meant to teach us, of wrath as God getting upset with us because we tried to crank the car when we weren't ready to drive the car, and God doesn't want us to get into a car accident and get hurt. If we start to think of God teaching us, then at the end of the passage when the psalmist finishes off saying, oh Lord, do not forsake me. Don't, don't be far from me, oh God. Come quickly to help me, oh Lord, my Savior. Not be far from me because I'm afraid of your wrath, but come quickly to me, God, my Savior. It redefines what we're actually looking for from God. It doesn't exactly redefine it. It helps us to understand what we were actually looking for from God the whole time. You see, we may hate getting rebuked. We may hate having to be taught when we wanted to have been right all along. But the reality is, when we know something needs to change, when we know something is broken, sometimes we are desperately grateful to be able to call out to our Savior. The point of what the psalmist is writing is not guilt. It's about salvation and transformation. It's not about where they were. It's not about that heartbreak and pain of where they were. It's about calling out to God for where they're going and where they're going to be. We all have moments when we desperately need to cry out to God. But if the core of that moment is guilt, then I would submit that we've missed the mark in our crying out. Because yes, we need to repent. Yes, we need to recognize our sins so we can turn away from it because we, we can't just live in those failures in relationship to God and relationship to others. But it's not about living in the failures. It's about looking for that salvation, that transformation, not being trapped in who we were, but moving toward who God would have us to be. Knowing that if I drove the car when I wasn't supposed to and got in a car accident, then as upset as my parent would be, I can call on them because they love me and they're mad not because they want to hurt me, but because they love me and they want the very best for me. It's not about guilt. It's about salvation. It's about crying out to God. We all get stuck in these cycles. We see it in the Israelites through the Old Testament. They have this ongoing cycle of missing the mark in loving God, repenting, getting better, missing the mark again. But God keeps showing grace to them over and over and over 
And when we miss the mark, God's greatest grace is there for us to call out for salvation. Now this morning we do have the opportunity to take communion together. And as we do that today, I want you to think of a few pieces to that. One, in all of what Christ has done for us that we can call out for salvation, that we can take part in the body and blood of Christ, that God allows us that wholeness as a community, but also that we take part in it. It's not just, not just one of us. We are a community in that. We are part of the body of Christ. And as such, when we face these times of anguish, that we mourn our sin, that we call out for salvation, we are not meant, as tempting as it is, to try to do it alone. We are intended to be part of a community of faith, to be together with each other as we face these times that we call out for salvation. So I'm going to pray for us, and, and our, our worship team is up here. They're going to play, and as we do that, we invite you to come take the elements. We have a setting over here, two over here, and we do have one in the back corner of the room. And as, as you take them, take them back to your seats to remind us that we are a community in this, in facing our failures and loving God and loving others and crying out to God. We are a community. So when you get them, hang on to them at your seat, and we're going to partake of them together this morning. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that we can cry out to you. And God, we thank you that crying out to you is not ultimately about guilt, but it's about salvation. God, it's about allowing you to transform us and take us beyond whatever situations we may find ourselves in and moving toward who you would have us to be and how you would have, help us to live out our love for you and love for others. In Jesus' name, amen.